0: I want to welcome all of you here at Washington, those at uh, Vincennes and Princeton, those joining us online. I'm so thankful that you're here. If you're visiting for us uh, for the very first time, welcome. My name is Matt, and this is a great time to, uh, to be a guest with us today. We start a new sermon series. This is simply titled Letters from Jesus, and it's this uh, series that comes from the book of Revelation, chapters 1, 2, and 3, where Jesus has this moment where he is the founder of the church, but he gets to peer in and actually talk to the church about how they're doing. It's kind of like Undercover Boss. You ever seen Undercover Boss before where um, the boss comes in under disguise and he gets a kind of real sense for the culture. He acts like he's a new employee and someone trains him. And so he gets an understanding of how management's really doing. And he he gets an understanding of like, is everything running smoothly in the company from the bottom up? And so he gets a, a, a new glance at it. And every time the CEO or a founder of Undercover Boss walks away from the store or the warehouse, they always come back with the same thing. We got work to do. We got some work to do. But they also have some ways in which they can applaud the company or applaud the workers. And what we're going to find in letters to the churches is Jesus, who is the founder, peers in, kind of walks amongst them from the bottom up and says, listen, you guys are doing some incredible things. I want to celebrate that with you. But there's some things that you got to do better. There's some weaknesses that can be strengths and I want to condemn you right now. And then he brings course correction because that's what Jesus does. So it's achievements, it's admonishment, and then it's an agenda for advancement, and I love how Jesus does that. And let's start with Re- Revelation chapter 1. It's page 991 in the Bible that's supplied by the church, and grab that with us, and maybe just get on your phone or your tablet, whatever you got there, and Revelation 1, and here's how it starts off. It begins by saying, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So who's bringing the revelation? Well, Jesus is bringing the revelation. Well, then what is a Revelation. That word revelation is a Greek word, it just means apocalypse or apocalypsis, which is an unveiling or a revealing about something that we don't know about. So something's in the dark, something's in the gray, something's definitely not in the light. And Jesus is saying, Let me tell you what it's like now. Let me pull back the curtain. And the curtain that he's pulling back is on heaven. He wants us to see heaven. He wants to see heaven as it is, he wants to see heaven as it will be, and he wants us to see earth. And uh, the book of Revelation is made up of three literary parts. It's, it's part letter to encourage the churches. It's, uh, it's also part prophecy, which means you don't have to do any kind of real deep thinking. It's just laid out there about what is to come and what has already happened. But it's also, it's also part apocryphal, which is a, a literary form to mean that there's some abstract things that are going on here in the scriptures that you're going to have to dive a little bit deeper into to make understanding of it. But really what is at the core of the book of Revelation is Jesus is showing us something that we've always wondered about. Not only is it about the churches, it's about what's to come. And who's he showing it to? Well, he's showing it to the apostle John. John, the apostle who walked with Jesus, one of the 12 that was chosen by Jesus, who oftentimes was called the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is just one way to say that I'm Jesus' favorite. And you know what? That's true, though. I mean, if you get into the text, you find out that, that possibly he was Jesus' favorite because it was Jesus who looked at the 11 uh, apostles that were there at the foot of the cross at the time. And of all of them, he chose John to take care of his mother Mary. And he says, John, you take care of her and you be like a son to her and you treat her like a mother. And it was John that was the only apostle that wasn't martyred for his faith. It was John that was able to live a long life on earth. Uh, an abandoned island of Rome called Patmos. And there he was pushed away because he was an influential preacher and Rome didn't like that he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So instead of killing him, they reduced his influence, so they thought, by reducing him to sending him to the island of Patmos just to grow old and die. But while he was there, Jesus Christ gave him a revelation. And Jesus showed back up to his old apostle, his old friend. And the reading, reason why he showed up was is because the Christians were experiencing a tremendous amount of persecution, and Jesus shows up to say, hold off, don't get burdened here, don't worry about it, the world's growing dark, but guess what? You're on the winning team. And if you're reading the book of Revelation and it scares you, you are reading it wrong. It should excite you that you are a part of the winning team and that Jesus Christ is the victor. And he's the winner. And there is victory and overcoming. And Jesus, there's a statement that said time and time again in the book of Revelation. Here it is. To the one who overcomes. You are an overcomer in Christ, regardless of how dark this world gets, you are an overcomer. And the Bible constantly reminds us of that. And it shouldn't scare us. It should just make us eager for Christ's return. But it also should make us happy to know that whatever is in us, Christ's spirit, has the power to overcome anything this world has to offer us. And so these... Letters were distributed. The book of Revelations was distributed in lettered form. It just kind of followed a postal route of the known time. And uh, the country of Turkey today, what was known then as kind of the ancient East and uh, the cities of Ephesus. And well, let's take a look at the map here that's on the screens. It's a picture of the postal route as it would have existed. And those seven churches were founded in seven cities. And this letter was carried around from one postal service to the next postal service. And Jesus was... Telling them you've done well here, you can do better here, and here's how we course correct. And I love that John just tries his best to make sense of something he's never seen before, like heaven. And so you read in Revelation a lot things like uh, he's trying to explain heaven away in earthly terms. And so he says things like like or kind of like or it was like. He just doesn't know how to explain spiritual things in temporal terms. And his description of Jesus in verse 12 of chapter one and verse 16 is is just awesome. It's like Jesus has you know, hair white as wool, his eyes are blazing with fire. It's, it's just a rad description of Jesus. And it's just, it's so amazing that it frightens John so much he falls over in, in faint, but it, he is like almost like a dead man in front of Jesus. He's like, I knew you in the flesh, but now I know you spiritually. And John just flat out says, I, I wrote this book in verse 9. He tells, us, he tells us who the recipients are in verse 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, just the the route around Turkey that was uh, the known postal route. And look at, look at what he is standing amongst. If you get into uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what it says. To the angels of the church in Ephesus write. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now most Bible scholars would believe the reference to the angel of the church is the pastor of the church who is shepherding it. Uh, Since angels are a messenger of God, uh, and so in a heavenly state, Jesus is saying, you need to write to the angels. And so, you know, I'm just planning on changing my title. (laughs) Lead angel. How does that sound? You're like, you ain't no angel, brother. Let me tell you about it. Yeah, I know I'm not. Goes on to say, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars. And so you can see in verse 9 of chapter 1 through verse 13 that that he's amongst these lampstands and then it gets further into it. These are the words of him and this is now verse two. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars. That's the pastors. Stars were often a reference to the guides, things that would guide you when we navigate by the stars and there were righteous stars. Like Daniel talks about the righteous stars of prophets and preachers. And then Jude talks about the wandering stars, the false prophets that you can't navigate by them because there are no truth within them. And then it says, he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And lampstands are these churches. And I want you to see that they're, they're not extinguished. They're shining brightly. And even though there's going to be some weaknesses found within them, even though there's going to be some problems that exist in the church, they're still shining brightly the message of Jesus Christ. There's still hope to a dark world, which, which we're called to be. And so Jesus is holding up the pastors. He's walking amongst the churches. He's with them and he's for them. And Jesus starts by commending the church by celebrating four admirable qualities of the church of Ephesus. Here they are. Verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles. Who are apostles? Those are the handpicked men who originally followed Jesus and helped to establish the early church. There were people going around and saying, I'm also an apostle. <laughs> and uh, the church was like, are they or were they? I don't know. And they were testing them to see truly if they walked with Jesus and hung around Jesus. And he says, but they're not. And you found them to be false. They're trying to claim to be apostles, but we're not and found them to be false. And you've persevered and have endured hardship for my name. And you've not grown weary, 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 weary. I wish I could say that better. I'm not an angel. Believe me, no angel. Did you catch the four qualities? Did you catch the four qualities? Here they are. Good deeds. They did some good deeds. Okay? They persevered, they had perseverance, they endured the hardship of ministry, they had church discipline, and, and here's the fourth one, they guarded against false teachers. Every church has something to be applauded for. Every church, it doesn't matter how, how much chaos they're in, it, it doesn't matter uh, what, what, their, what, what their budget is like, it doesn't matter if leadership is good or bad. If there is some exaltation of Jesus found within the group of believers There is something that you can find to be applauded for. They have some kind of strength. And the strength of Ephesus was they did some good deeds. They did some good deeds, which is right at the heart of what Jesus teaches us, that if you want to demonstrate to the world who's in darkness and you want to be a lampstand, then you need to do some good deeds. Why does Jesus say this? So that they will see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. So that they'll see what you're doing and say, boy, God is good, God is gracious, God is merciful. Thank God. But they all said perseverance, and that's just more than just like enduring over the long haul. Perseverance was they didn't get tired of doing good things. You ever get tired of doing good things? I do, because I ain't no angel. I get tired of doing good things, and I just wonder, like, how much can I get wrung out here before I get wiped out? You ever feel that way? Like, what more can the church ask of me? What more could God want of me? How far do I have to walk? Another mile? Turn the next cheek? Give my coat also? I just get tired of good deeds. This church of Ephesus never got tired. They just continually perpetuating the way they could go about loving the Lord and doing good things. And then church discipline. It looked like the elders or the leaders of Ephesus did good about keeping, keeping and holding to the scriptures that they had. That there were sheep, or there were wolves in sheep clothing that tried to infiltrate and tried to spread false doctrine. Let me tell you one of the hardest things about, about church leadership about being an elder or being a pastor. The hardest thing is church discipline. Having to approach a brother or sister and saying, listen, I recognize I've got a plank in my eye, but I need to point out the speck in your eye. And especially it's hard when that is done and you're holding a Christian accountable for a sin that they're a part of, and you want to see them repent so that they can have restoration. And you approach that person with grace and with mercy and humility, and yet they they take it with a, with a souring and spiteful, and, and they don't take it as restoration. They take it as a wounding and they, they lash back and they don't have a desire to repent. They don't have a desire to be restored. And typically, what has to happen then, the discipline has to get greater. And if they're involved in any kind of active service, we have to pull them away from acts of service. If it goes even further than that and they just want to bleed out on the congregation and flaunt their sin, they have to be removed from the congregation. In the case of Ephesus here, it's not just sin that they're holding men and women accountable for. It was, it was worse than that. These were men and women that had infiltrated the, the, probably the largest church in the, all the world, Ephesus. And they were bent on evil. They wanted wickedness, meaning they wanted the downfall of the church. They were kind of operatives of Satan working within. And if you don't think that's not happening to Bethany, it is. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they're doing, but there is always wicked people that will try to infiltrate the church and be the demise of it, but it ain't going to happen. You want to know why? Because of what Revelation says, God wins. There are also those that were stirring up false teaching, things that were contrary to the Bible, and they were pushing those false teachers away. Would we ever do that here? You bet. Why? Because it's biblical. Titus chapter one tells us, hey, if there's a false teacher among you, if there's false teaching... You need to recognize that false teaching. You need to recognize that false teacher. You need to rebuke them publicly and say they're wrong and the teaching is wrong. You need to teach the congregation to resist it. And then if they don't wanna be restored, you need to remove the false teacher from your presence. You're like, that sounds pretty harsh. Does it though? When pastors and elders have been asked to protect the sheep from wolves and from wolves in sheep clothing. It sounds a lot like love to me. The city of Ephesus is this huge city, huge giant port, giant harbor, the largest city in the known world at the time. The apostle Paul helped to form this church, spent three years with them. The the city of Ephesus is known for making idols and sending idols out from all over the world. If you were to get an idol from uh, the store, it would say made in Ephesus. They were so proud of their idol worship. They built a an elaborate temple to the god Artemis and this goddess Diana. Uh, both are interchangeable. That, that no longer exists. I mean, it's just a pile of rubble now. And the worship of that god is, is just extinct. But people would make pilgrimages from all over the world to Ephesus. So just imagine, here's the, here's the soil that this church is trying to minister in. Very hard soil. People are coming into the city by the millions to worship the goddess Diana. They're coming to see the seventh wonder of the world. And this church is holding strong. They're holding strong. And just like there's strengths in every church, there's also weaknesses though. And Bethany has its weaknesses as well. Jesus shows up to this church and says, you guys have done these things right, but let me tell you one thing you've done wrong. Revelation chapter two, verse four, it's on the screen. Here's the big thing they've done wrong. And it could be true of us too if we don't really kind of watch our heart and examine it. I hold this against you. I hold this against you, Jesus says. You have forsaken the love you had at first. He's saying, your love for me is no longer there. So it really begs the question in my mind as a pastor, how do you do good deeds and how do you protect against doctrine? How do you persevere when God's love's not in you? Well, I'll tell you how. You know about what Jesus would do, you just don't know Jesus here. You know head knowledge, you know habits, your hands can do it, but your heart's far from him. It's no different than those early religious leaders that Jesus so often condemned, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when he'd look right directly into their heart and say, your, your actions look so good, your deeds look so good, but your, heart, your heart's far from me. Your faith is dead. And he looked at them and he called them whitewashed tombs. Like to the world, you look good and you look right, but on the inside, it's just a dead faith. And friends, there's churches and there's Christians that, that could probably have that same pronouncement upon them, that everything looks good from the outside, And they're doing all the right Jesus stuff, the head, the habits, and the hands, but their heart is far from them. They're living out the purposes of Jesus, but they've lost the passion for Jesus. And I'll tell you what, the condemnation is pretty rough here. They've abandoned their first love. You've walked away from the love of Jesus, but it gets deeper than that, and I think it even gets worse than that. Because if you get into that phrase, first love, it's the Greek words, protos agape. Agape was a word that the Christians made to kind of understand God's love. It means unconditional love, meaning you don't have to do anything to gain it. You don't have to do anything to keep it. God just loves you. (laughs) That's an amazing, that's an amazing thing in itself. But it's called protos agape. Protos is where we get the word prototype. Prototype is the first. And so what, what John is saying here, or Jesus rather is saying to John is, I am the first love. You wouldn't know love unless it came from me. Like 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It's on the screen. This is what real love or agape love is. It's not, it's not our love for God. It doesn't start with us. God doesn't love us because we love him. That's not how it works. No, it's God's love for us. He sent his son to die in our place to take away our sin. Like, if you want to know where God stands today about you, regardless of where you're at in life or the decisions you've made or the regrets you have or the guilt that's on your shoulders, God loves you and he wants you to come to repentance so that you can be restored and redeemed. Why? Because he is protos agape. He is the first to love. He doesn't need your love for him to love you. His love's not based on a feeling. It's not based on, you know, the goosebumps he gets or the hair that stands up on the back of his neck. No. No. His love is based on a decision and long before you were ever born, God decided that he was going to love you and you were going to be the focus of his love. And if you don't buy that, you better start buying it because that's the truth. Because there's a bunch of us, there's a bunch of us that think this way, like the Ephesians probably thought, because this is what leads you astray from receiving and living out the love of God. Well, God won't love me unless. You ever thought that before? That God just won't love me unless. Unless what? Well, unless I completely obey. Friends, there are churches that even teach that. God won't love you unless you are completely holy. God won't love me unless I, I'm flawless. <laughs> When's that gonna happen? That ain't ever gonna happen. God won't start loving me. I heard this one. This is, this is out of the pits of hell. God won't start loving me until I start loving myself. Now he loves you. God won't love me unless I do enough good things that outweigh my bad things. For that one. You ever said that before? God won't love me unless? And you put some kind of like conditional clause on God's unconditional love. It's not possible. He's proto-agape. He already loves you. He doesn't need you to love him back for his love to be landing on you. And so this idea of God won't love me unless, all it does is drive you away from God and it puts you in a position like the church of Ephesus where it says, I will do all these good looking things, but the motive will be all wrong. The motive won't be for the love of Jesus. I'll tell you, it can get worse than that. What worse is the thinking God won't love because. Hey, I understand the unless thing, like I gotta get to this level, which you don't. It's already been done. It's already been done. You don't have to do anything. God's love, it's already been done for you. But this idea of God won't love because, this exists and it is real. And this drives drives people away from believing, like the Ephesians, that God never loved them to begin with and they forget about it. Like God won't love me because, God won't love me because I had an abortion. God won't love me because I've gone through a divorce. No, two divorces. No, make it three. God won't love me because I've been through three divorces. God won't love me because I haven't been faithful to a spouse. God won't love me because I've served time or because I've been a, quote, menace to society. God won't love me because I'm trapped in an addiction or trapped in some kind of sexual sin or because my identity is all mixed up. God won't love me. God will never love me because. Oh, man. Not only does that grieve me, it grieves the heart of God because it can be further from the truth. Friend, there's nothing that can keep you from God's love but yourself just not responding to it. And God loves you. And He loves you right where you're at, as you are, and who you are. And he loves you so much that he just can't keep you that way. He wants to change you to be more like Jesus Christ. And I look at this church here of Ephesus, and I look at it and I say God's love was for them, and they just weren't receiving it. They thought it was based upon them to receive God's love and, and God was already loving them. They just need to embrace that. And they had this unknown weakness. Unknown, it was like un, they just didn't know what they didn't know. They just didn't know their weakness. And it makes me wonder if I know my weakness, if I know where I fall short in the faith. It makes me wonder if Bethany Christian Church knows where it falls short in the faith. It, it begs me to ask you Do you know where you fall short in the faith? Or are you a lot like me? My head is just in the sand and I can't see some of the glaring faults of my faith that I have. So how do you know? Like, how do you know when you've lost that love and feeling? You guys want to sing it? I've been watching way too much Top Gun. I think I can do it. How do you know you've lost the love for Jesus Christ? Number one, you just give up on God. And you're like, okay, well, I'm here. I haven't given up on God. No, 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 listen to it like this. You've given up on the promises of God. It's not that you don't believe in him. It's not that, that you like have suggested in your heart, I've abandoned God. It's, it's not like a consciousable thing. It's just I've, I've given up on the promises. The promises that he'll sustain me. That he'll take care of my every daily need. Like, will he really? I don't know. Have you put him to the test? That he'll give you the ability to Make a situation that's bad, and he'll be able to work something good out of that bad situation. Do you believe that? You you forget the promises about his grace and his mercy and that that protos agape stuff, and you, you've given up on his word and how it can challenge you and change you and make you. You've given up on prayer; it's it's powerless passionless. You've given up on worship. It's an event you attend rather than an experience with God and a moment to celebrate. And the songs that are on the screen are just an invitation for you to express something that you know is on your heart, but you couldn't say it yourself. Miss out on the fellowship. You just give up on God. Here's the second thing. You want to know if you've lost that love and feeling for Jesus? You give up on God, but you give up on his church. You give up on his church. Hey, let me just address something to all of our campuses. Church hurt is real. And there are some crummy leaders out there in the church and there are some crummy people that live and call themselves Christians but are far from Christ. And they've wounded you and they've hurt you or they've wrung you out. Some have done it unintentionally and some have done it manipulatively. And church hurt is real. But can I be as blunt as I possibly can with you? You've got to get over that. You've got to climb above that and you need to fall back in love with whom Jesus is in love with and that is his bride. Because Jesus died for his church and absolutely loves him, the bride of Christ. And Jesus loves us even though we're filled with flaws. And maybe instead of getting all, you know, the faults about this church and the faults about that church, you need to say, I'm going to strengthen up and girden up the faults and I'm going to take this weakness. I'm going to do my best with God's power in my life to make a strength here at this place that doesn't seem to be achieving in this area. Can you imagine? Because I, I hear this a lot. I hear people say, I love Jesus, but I don't love going to church. Or, I love Jesus. Or I, I think the church is a mess. Are you kidding me? If you had a best friend and you looked at, his, looked at him and said, listen, man, I love you, but boy, I, you're, I can't stand your bride. She's a mess and I can't, I can't hang around her. That, that kind of posture, that kind of attitude, your friend is going to say, well, guess what? We're not going to hang out anymore either. Like that's going to sever and ruin the relationship immediately because the two are one. And yet anytime we say, I am in love with Jesus, but I'm not in love with whom he loves, we're lying to ourselves. We're in love with the concept of Jesus, the idea of Jesus. We're in love with the deeds of Jesus. But Jesus isn't in the heart. Because in the heart, we would find ourselves to forgive. Here's what Colossians tells us. Paul looks at a church who is just full of church hurt. And here's what he says. Put up with each other. That's blunt. (laughs) Like There's some morons in the church. Just look in the mirror. There's some morons in the church. (laughs) Put up with each other. Forgive anyone, anyone, anyone who does you wrong just as Christ has forgiven you. There's the clause. As Christ has forgiven you, just with the same grace, the same amount, you forgive other people with. And that is endless and it is abundant and it never ends. And friends, you got to get to this realization that church is not something that you go to or attend. Church is a family. This is your family. Like it or love it, this is your family. And you don't walk away from your family. Here's the third thing. How do you know you've lost love and feeling? You give up on God, you give up on the church, and you start believing in yourself for truth. Hey, there's a lot of hybrid Christians that I know. Believers that have a little bit of Bible and a whole lot of of secular thought Right now, plurality, majority is forming our opinions in the church. It's forming our opinions as Christians. So it's like this, whatever is commonly believed in the United States or commonly around the world, then we'll accept that as our belief too. And, And some of you are going to think, well, he's going to get political here because he's going to talk about abortion. No, no, I'm going to get biblical here. And some of you are going to associate that with political stuff because you've been politicized rather than putting yourself in the scriptures. It's so interesting to me that once the Supreme Court announced that abortion wasn't a right of its citizens and sent it back down to the states to be voted upon. How those that once said everyone should have a right to abortion, 83% of the United States, 83% of the United States, said you had a right to abortion. But when that, that changed, how quickly that number fell and believers started to say, whoa, whoa, that, that, I guess that's not acceptable anymore, so I guess it's not acceptable with me either. And so here's what the numbers are now. 53%, which is much higher than that, or rather 56% of Catholics think abortion should be legal in all or most cases. You know that number used to be much higher than that. It's dropped down to 56%. That's still way too high. You wanna know why? Because the church, the Catholic church, their stance on abortion is that it's ungodly, that it's a sin, that at any stage, life is sacred at the moment of conception. And that's biblical teaching. And now some would say, well, they've gotten political. No, no, you've gotten political. They stayed biblical. Life is sacred. We were knitted together in our mother's womb. Now, I would estimate within the Protestant church, that's, that's us, we're, <laughs> I hate to be called Protestants, we're not protesting anything. I would estimate that 35% or somewhere in there that that belief is still held that, that a woman should have a right to an abortion. I would believe that those who I'm speaking, 35, roughly 35%, that should be legalized in some cases, or maybe even most cases. I think surveys suggest that. How about this, instead of putting your thoughts and your decisions under the authority of a politician or the law of the land, how about you just put yourself under the authority of God the Father and let that become the standard for what is right and wrong? Because too many of us have allowed ourselves to become hybrid with a foot in the world and a foot in heaven, And we've allowed politics to override the lordship of Jesus. And we've become subservient to public opinion and public officials and political things, rather than just becoming subservient to the king of kings and lord of lords and saying, I'm going to take my feelings out of this. And I'm going to let God decide on this. And I'm going to follow God with my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength, the whole self, the whole self. And I assume Ephesus, they weren't following God with their whole self. They're allowing some things to happen and it led them far from God. So how do, you know, how do you know if you've lost your love for Jesus? Hey, simple. You give up on God and his promises. You give up on the church and you start believing in yourself for truth rather than the word of God and becoming subservient to it. How do you know if you're a part of a church though that has lost its love? Like well, maybe Bethany Christian Church has lost its love. And we're just doing all these things in our name or for other reasons or other motives, but we're not doing it because we have the passion of Christ in our heart. How do you know if a church lost its first love? I'll give you some some ideas here. Number one, there's no more celebration. You ever been in a church like that? Everything's down and depressing. There's no joy in the hallway. There's no joy in the service. There's no victory that marks the day. There's no there's no moments that we can overcome and we can do this because not of ourselves, but because of the power of God at working within us. There's no victory found in the church. Here's the second thing. The leadership is is domineering. Like it's just marked with an attitude of of nose up arrogancy continually. And when you look at that leader or you look at leadership, you go, boy, they are the most arrogant thing on the face of the earth. Or how about they're habitually hypocritical. It's not like they failed once, they keep failing. They're not practicing what they preach. They're just expecting you to do, but not for them. Or maybe it's they're highly dogmatic, meaning their opinions have now turned to doctrine, and you better believe it too. And if you don't believe it, then you're not welcome here. Or maybe they're highly have a high dictatorship. They're like benevolent dictators. They're nice and kind, but man, they're going to tell you what to do and how to do it. And if you don't do it their way, there's no freedom in that church. That's domineering. Here's the third part. They're highly legalistic. Highly legalistic. You ever been in church that's highly legalistic? It's not about relationship with God. It's not about freedom. It's not about grace. It's not about what he's done on the cross. It's about what you're doing. And have you done enough? It's about rules and rituals. It's about policy over people. It's about creed over Christ. There's no, there's no opinion that you can have. You voice your opinion any time and it doesn't match the opinions of the church. You're gone. You're gone. Or you're at least ostracized. And Jesus tells that first church in Ephesus. Look at verse five. You need to consider how far you've fallen. Here's what I love. Jesus not only just commends and condemns. He's gonna challenge us to get right. He's gonna help us course correct. That's what he does. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place. Meaning, I'll close this place down. I'll snuff out your candle. You won't be a light to the world anymore. You'll be a social club. Verse six, but if you live in... You, if you have this in your favor, you, you have this in your favor. We, we, we hate the practices of the, the, the Nicolaitans, who I also hate. Like he's saying, like you hate him, I hate him. <laughs> Good. Verse seven, whoever has ears, let him hear that what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So if you've discovered that your, your love, your first love has been lost, you've lost that love and feeling for Jesus, or maybe you don't even know it. How do we get back? Listen, there's a prescription here that Jesus gives. First is this, repent, which is return from your present course and come to God. Turn towards God. Allow God's word to take lordship over your life. He's ready to receive you. He's protos agape. It has nothing to do with unless or because he loves you. And you need to remember what Jesus said. Never will he leave you, Never will he forsake you. He's not going to abandon you. And as far away as you run, you can never outrun him. You need to repent now and turn to him. Return back to God. Here's the second part. You need to return. Get back to do doing what you originally did when you first became a Christian. Do you remember any of that? What did you do when you first became a Christian? I'll tell you what you did. You couldn't get enough of this. You couldn't get enough of this. You couldn't get enough preaching. You couldn't get enough fellowship. You couldn't get enough time serving. You couldn't get enough. You just wanted to do it all right then. Get back to allowing the word of God to encourage you. Getting back to the word of God to correcting you. Get back to putting yourself under the lordship of Jesus, becoming the ultimate authority for your life and all of your decisions. Do the things that you first did when you came to the knowledge that you were worthy of God and he loves you regardless, unless, because, regardless of all that stuff. When you first found out that God wanted you, didn't need you, wanted you, you get back to that. You get back to that stuff. Like what I'm telling you is fall in love all over again. Get back to that place that you don't have to do anything for God to love you. He already loves you. And that's what the cross represents. Some of you though, you have unintentionally hardened your heart. There are some that have intentionally, but many of us have unintentionally hardened our heart against God. Would you just pray that God soften my heart for you? I repent and I want to return to you. I've soured towards you and I've soured towards your church and now I believe I can create truth for myself how wrong I was. I want to fall in love with you all over again. And maybe you've soured towards the church. Would you just say, God, show me, your, show me the faults that are within me so I can be gracious with the faults that I see in others. And you know what you need to do? You need to get back. Get back to serving Get back to fellowshipping. Somebody you soured on the church because the church has just passed you by. You think this is a static place. You're, not, you're like clueless about how fast it grows and clueless how fast things of ministry change around here. And you're just kind of stuck a year away from a year ago or, or 20 years ago. And you're like, I don't know. I don't even know. I'm just giving up. I'm just coming here to worship. I'm not gonna be a part of it in that way. No, no, you get back to serving. God's not done with you yet. And you remember, you remember, think back. This is the remember. Repent, return, and remember. Think back to what it was like when you first believed. Think back to that. When you're like, you can't keep me away from small group. I, you, can't, you can't hold me away from that. Not now where it's like, oh, shoot, small group again? No, no, you couldn't keep me from it. Get back on page about our vision, mission, and purpose of this church. Do you even know what the vision, mission, and purpose of Bethany is? If you don't, I'm sure you've soured on this place because you have no clue why we do what we do. You need to go to discover Bethany. But I've been here 30 years. I don't care. You've missed it you've missed it. And you've soured on this place and you've soured on leadership and you've soured on your faith all because you thought the church was static when it is alive and thriving. And you get back to a place that can tell you what we're all about. And you get back on page and you get back on mission. Let's become the church with with a God-given guidance. And you get back to developing those devotions and those disciplines that you once had and you once longed for, those disciplines that you're missing out on, Bible reading and prayer and confession and and fellowship and serving and giving. You get back to all that. And don't let your hard heart hold you back from loving on God and loving on his church. And maybe this fall as Rooted gets thrown out and you get to go on a 12-week experience of developing those seven rhythms of our faith, those core disciplines of a Christian. You just say, I need that. I'm gonna sign up for it. Whether my spouse wants to or not, I need that. I need to get back to my first love. But friends, don't settle for a hard heart. Don't settle to sit there and say, that isn't me. It's all of us. Let's get back to our first love. Let's allow him to not only be savior, but the Lord of our life as well. And let us pray that God does for us what he did to the people long ago in Jeremiah's day. I will give you a heart to know that I am the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. For you shall return to me with your whole heart. Pray with me. God, we want that for us. I don't know. I mean, show us. Show us our faults. Show us where we're failing in faith. I don't want to be clueless about it. I don't want the congregation to be clueless. I don't reveal to us, Father, graciously reveal to us where we are weak and how we become strong. And Father, if we're guilty of forsaking our first love, we are sorry. And we want to return to you and fill us with the joy and the love that we once had that once marked our faith and once marked our life as believers, but now does not. We look to you to restore us as only you can, to soften our hearts, to draw us close to you, to reveal yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.